this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you are listening to Table Scraps. Sola Fide and her cultured despisers is our topic today, and I'm going to start it out with a little Scott Hahn. Now, you're not going to believe it, but this is Scott Hahn, the Catholic apologist, talking about the doctrine of justification. Here we go. So that sonship, which begins in baptism, must mature, and it does so through faith-filled obedience when we say, God, I trust you, I need you, and so I'm going to get the power you offer me, and obey the commandments that you give me for my health. God's power, uh, obe- obedience, uh, his in uh, following his will, this is, if you'll believe it, a discussion of justification. And you can see, just simply from that quote, the rift that exists between Lutherans and Catholics. We have on the line with us Pastor Steve Parks, uh, pastor of University Hills Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great to have you on. I'm still reveling in the uh, in the interview we had last week um, on Sola Scriptura and hope to match it this week with this discussion of Sola Fide. All right, Scott Hahn, we want to take this guy head-on, really, uh, because he stands uh, for, these, for the Catholic Church as she presents herself uh, to the Protestants, and his stated attempt is trying to convert... Uh, Reformation Christians to the Roman Catholic faith. And here he says that justification is about my faith-filled obedience. Uh, Tell us what the Bible teaches about justification and how the Catholic Church uh, teaches differently. Love to do it. Well, first of all, let me just uh, tell you a little bit about what the Roman Catholic Church teaches regarding justification, because I think it'll act as a good backdrop for sort of understanding what it is that he means there. The Roman Catholic Church teaches something completely different about grace than what the Scriptures, and as a result, uh, the sons and daughters of the Reformation teach. And that is, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that grace is actually like a substance. And it's a substance that is infused into your soul, which enables you to uh, be obedient and to obey God. So that uh, when you have that substance infused into your soul, you can cooperate with God in order, in the final analysis, to merit your justification. And so the way that I sometimes explain it to my parishioners is, uh, you know, you, you need to get somewhere, but you don't have enough gas in your tank in order to get there. So you simply can't get there on your own. And so Jesus comes along and he fills your tank for you so that you can get where you need to go. This is kind of a, a crass way, but it's, I think, an accurate way to explain the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification or how one is made right before God. Jesus dies in order to merit the substance of grace so that that substance can be infused into your soul. And what that substance does when it's infused into your soul is it enables you to cooperate with God in order that you might merit your salvation or your justification before God in the final analysis. So that's kind of what the Roman Catholics teach there, and and this is reflected um, in in Hans' statement. The thing that I find kind of interesting are are two things um, relating to the the clip that you just played. The first is Hans talks about this divine sonship that we're given in Christ, and certainly that is a biblical uh, idea. The problem is is that um, what we're the way in which we're made sons and daughters of God is not by nature, but rather by adoption. And as you and I both know, Brian, adoption is a legal category, <laughs> not a metaphysical category. Uh, in other words, if I adopt a son or a daughter, uh, they do not literally become uh, inwardly, intrinsically, uh, by nature, my son or my daughter, but they become legally my son or my daughter, so that they have all the same rights and privileges as one who is my biological son or daughter, despite the fact that they're not related to me by blood. So adoption, as a son or daughter, is a legal category. And that's important to understand, because what the Scriptures teach about salvation is that we are saved not by our own works, not by our own obedience, not by our own transformation, not by our own efforts, but instead by the work of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes and he keeps the law perfectly, in our place. Remember, Han talked about the importance of obedience. Well, as biblical Christians, we know that the scriptures don't just demand a partial obedience. Uh, They don't call us simply to try to do what God tells us to do, but instead they say that you have to be perfect, just as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's how Jesus sums up his teaching regarding the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So God requires an absolute and a perfect obedience, one that you and I and all of the listeners aren't able to render because we're sinful human beings. But Jesus comes and he renders that perfect obedience in our place. He keeps God's laws in all of his thoughts and in all of his words and in all of his deeds, and he does it for you and he does it for me. 
But more than that, also he dies to take upon himself the penalty that we all deserve for having broken the law. So that, uh, remember that the wages of sin is death, we're told in Romans chapter 6. And Jesus accepts the wages of sin upon himself so that you and I are able to go free and to receive everything that is his. So there's kind of an exchange that takes place in justification. And that is that Christ receives upon himself everything that we deserve so that he can give to us everything that he deserves. He, deser- he, he receives sin and death and condemnation. And in, in the, the great exchange that takes place, he gives to us eternal life and salvation and the forgiveness of all of our sins. This is what the scriptures teach us. So justification is delivering to the sinner uh, the victory over sin, death, and the devil that Jesus has won on the cross. Precisely that. I know that we talk a lot about the, the different solas in the Reformation, but the main sola is Christ alone. And when it comes to justification, this is extremely important. The one, the only one whose works really merit anything before God are the works of Jesus, because he's the only one who's able to render perfect obedience. And so he has won for us life and salvation and forgiveness, and he gives us those things as an absolutely free gift, which we receive through faith and through no other means. I think uh, if you get then the doctrine of the atonement wrong, the substitutionary death of Christ, then there's no, there's absolutely no way that you can get justification right. Uh, one one error has to follow the other, and I think that's what we're going to see in this clip uh, of Scott Hahn. He's he's talking about a number of different things, but he's going to talk about the substitutionary atonement in here, and and I think we might find it in this place, the fountainhead of the error. Let's listen to this clip here. Israelites properly treasured the Word of God, especially the law of God, written with the finger of the Lord on these tablets of stone. I mean, what more could you want? Well, the Word made flesh dwelling among us. He's assuming what is ours, human nature, to give us what is his, divine nature, divine sonship. And so Saul, now Paul, says in Philippians, whatever I counted as gain, I now count as loss, refuse in comparison to having Christ. So it is no longer I who lives, he says to the Galatians, but Christ who lives in me. And to me, that is another breakthrough, because Christ didn't come you know, in order to obey the law, suffer, die, and rise, in order to get us off the hook. So we don't have to obey, although it's a great thing to do. We don't have to suffer, but we will if we don't have enough faith. No, Christ doesn't come as a substitute. In the Catholic tradition, following Paul, he comes as a representative. Did you now? I you heard what I heard, right? Christ didn't come as a substitute; he came as a representative. That's what he said, right? That is absolutely what he said. There were two things there that that kind of caught me by surprise. The first is is when he said that Christ didn't come in order to obey the law, uh, in order to suffer and die and rise again, in order to get us off the hook. The problem is is that this is exactly why the Lord Jesus came. The Apostle Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption, again, this legal category, as sons. And so Christ did, in fact, come under the law in order to obey the law, to suffer and die and rise, in order to, as he said, get us off the hook. He comes in order to be the one who bears the curse in our place. And because he bears the curse, you and I no longer bear it. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you and I no longer (laughs) are responsible for taking away the sin of the world, which is a good thing because we could never do it. The the second part, as you pointed out, is he says that he comes as a representative. Uh, This is a a kind of an interesting view of the atonement, and it's one that's that's not particularly Roman Catholic, by the way. Yeah. Uh, simply because of this idea that uh, if Jesus simply comes as a substitute, uh, or rather, if Jesus simply comes as a representative, then what's the point of the cross? Jesus could have acted as a wonderful um, sort of representative. He could have acted that way without ever having had to, to go to the cross. He could have acted as a wonderful example without ever suffering and dying and rise again. So those who say that Jesus came simply to be kind of a good example for us, uh, you know, they really have to struggle with the idea of the cross. How does the cross fit in there? It seems to be almost an alien element that really isn't needed because you only need Jesus' life and teachings if you want to have him simply be uh, this, this example. Uh, but, of course, we know from Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
And that word in the Greek for there is uh, the word huper, which means on behalf of, or perhaps even more accurately, in the place of. In other words, he dies as our substitute. I know this is. I mean, this is so basic and fundamental to the whole doctrine of the New Testament, of the whole Bible, of of everything that is Christian. That to to deny this substitutionary atonement uh, is 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 incredible to me. But I think I rewound a little bit. Let's see if we can hear it again. As a substitute, in the Catholic tradition, following Paul, he comes as a representative. He, you know, yeah, I'd heard it right. I can't. I really can't believe it. Now you said that this is not particularly Roman Catholic. I'd, I'd like you to just elaborate on that for a minute or two. Uh, uh, does the, for example, if we were to go to Trent or the Catholic Catechism or Vatican II or something, uh, would we be able to find uh, ex, uh, uh, the substitutionary atonement there in the teaching of the Church? You are going to be able to find it. Um, you're, you're going to be able to find it in in Western Christendom very clearly, especially. Um, you know, in, in some of the documents there that you mentioned. Now, they don't exactly explain it the same way that we do, but you have to remember that in the Roman Catholic system, the death and resurrection of Jesus is preeminently important. Now, they will say, again, that Jesus is dying in order to merit for us the grace of, of justification, that is, to have that substance infused into our souls. So they certainly have a wrong understanding of it. So don't misunderstand me there. But they do say that that death was necessary, that Jesus didn't come simply to be a, a good or a nice example for us to follow, but he came in order to merit for us that grace of justification. So here I think Han may even be departing from uh, the classical Roman Catholic view of the atonement. He, he really actually sounds like he's opting a little more toward perhaps the Eastern Orthodox view, which is uh, Jesus becomes incarnate uh, in order to sanctify our human natures so that he can give us his Holy Spirit and to make us a little bit more like himself, this idea of theosis. Um, which is, like I said, a little more in line with what the Eastern Orthodox believe versus uh, what the Roman Catholics historically have taught. Well, there's a little bit more in this clip where he actually, I think, will elaborate on that topic, if I remember right. So let's listen to another 40 seconds here and see what happens. You know, Christ comes and assumes what is ours, human nature, to give us what is his, divine nature, so that he obeys, not in order to get us off the hook, to exempt us from obedience, but to empower us with his spirit to reproduce in us nothing less than his own divine sonship, his own love, his own willingness to suffer, die, and rise. That notion of Christ the representative is much closer to Paul than Christ the substitute. We participate through the spirit in Christ. And so the spirit comes to us, and especially in the church, through the sacraments, as Paul taught me, we end up receiving nothing less than Christ's own divine sonship. What a marvel- marvelously pious denial of the gospel. <laughs> Holy yeah. schmoly. You know, if, uh, <clears throat> if Christ didn't, didn't come to die for us, then we have absolutely no hope. If Jesus didn't live the commandments for us in our place perfectly, we have no hope. Why is that? Because, again, Scripture doesn't tell us to start obeying. It doesn't tell us to partially obey. It tells us to obey and to obey perfectly, under threat of damnation. And if somebody doesn't obey those commandments, if somebody doesn't redeem us or get us off the hook, as Han kind of flippantly puts it, then you and I are damned for eternity. But we know that, in fact, that is the reason why Christ came to come and to give his life, as he says, a ransom for who pair in the place of many. Now, if if you start then with... Um well, let's just take a couple steps back and then try to work our way forward. And, and you can um, uh, correct me where I get this right or wrong. Uh, Han understands the, the the purpose of the Lord Jesus coming to earth is not to be a, a holy sacrifice and substitute in, in our place, to suffer the wrath of God for us uh, so that he might then forgive our sins and receive us as his own children. Han understands the coming of Jesus, his incarnation, and his uh, then apparently his life and his death and his resurrection, uh, to be a kind of restorative act to do, to bring back to humanity the Holy Spirit, so that we through the Holy Spirit are empowered to live as the sons and daughters of God. Right? Is that that, that that's right? I don't know that he would necessarily deny. Uh, the part that you talked about with the cross, but it certainly isn't his emphasis at the very least. That's right. So that now, if this is the point of Jesus coming, then justification couldn't be uh, declaring us 
uh, holy or perfect or righteous with an alien righteousness, with the righteousness that belongs to Christ, with his obedience applied to us. It couldn't be that, because that's not, the, that's not why Jesus came. Uh, he came, rather, to empower us so that justification will have to, instead of being declaring someone righteous, justification in his mind, because of his false doctrine of the atonement, will have to be a making righteous, a really kind of uh, what we traditionally would consider to be sanctification. Well, that's precisely it. And I think the bottom line is is that Scott Hahn especially is big on using um, not so much legal language, which is what you and I were talking about, and which, by the way, is, is explicitly what the Holy Scriptures use, but instead he prefers to use sort of familial language, you know, being made sons and daughters of God. And of course, as heirs of the Reformation, we fully believe that. We believe that Jesus died not only to merit for us the forgiveness of sins, but also to merit for us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who does make us holy. However, that being made holy, that being conformed into the image of Christ, that being adopted as sons and daughters of God, is not the thing that merits salvation before God. Uh, Instead, the only thing that merits the forgiveness of sins is the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior. I would take a little time and prove that to me and to our listeners from the Scriptures, Steve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about what the what the Scriptures teach in relation to what we call the doctrine of sola fide, or the idea that we're saved uh, not by our works, but by faith alone. The first is the words uh, that you find in John chapter 5 from our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells his listeners, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And so here Jesus teaches that justification, being made, being uh, uh, receiving the forgiveness of sins, being given the gift of eternal life, is not something that comes about as a result of the works that we do, but is instead a result of receiving the promise. In other words, just simply having faith. He says here again, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. Not might have it, not will have it if you cooperate with God and the grace that he gives you when you merit your salvation, but instead you do have it, has everlasting life as a present possession and shall not come into judgment. Notice the legal term there, judgment, but has passed from death into life. This is the same teaching that we see all over the scriptures, um, You know, perhaps most famously in Romans chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul specifically says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In other words, we receive the salvation and forgiveness by faith, by trusting Christ apart from the deeds of the law, apart from anything good that we can possibly do. This is why he goes on to say in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God justifies the ungodly or the wicked who believe in him because it's through faith that we receive the perfect and uh, absolutely unblemished righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul in Galatians chapter 2, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. You're listening to Table Scraps. This is uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with Pastor Steve Parks, and we are talking about Sola Fide and her cultured despisers. Uh, Steve is bringing forth from us the marvelous teaching in the Scriptures that justification comes by faith alone, uh, not by works. But, Steve, I have to, you know, in uh, it's a claim in more recent times to uh, that really stands underneath the despising of faith alone is a redefining of the word works, uh, especially the way Paul used them. And I'd like to just take a couple minutes to talk about that, because uh, the, these texts are so clear, but someone might come along who has this new perspective on Paul uh, and say, now, now that's fine, uh, we're not saved by works, but by faith. But when Paul talks about works there, he's talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about circumcision, uh, kosher laws, the Sabbath. We're not justified by those works, but that doesn't mean we're not justified uh, by doing good works in obedience to God in the other moral commandments. Right, right. And it's, it's kind of interesting because it's really a, a tremendous redefinition of what works of the law are meant in Scripture. If you take a look, for example, at Matthew chapter 23, where you have those famous woes that Jesus is pronouncing upon the Pharisees, 
In Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now listen here, Brian, as, as to what he describes as the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, he says, without leaving the others undone. So we don't want to pretend like works of the law uh, are excluding works of justice or works of mercy or works of faith. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ here says that those are the weightier matters of the law. But, you know, Paul's denial that we're saved by works extends way beyond just the ceremonial works of the law. And, and you can see that if you just kind of read Romans continuously. For example, um, Paul cites Abraham in Romans chapter 4, uh, who's one who predated the ceremonial law as kind of the preeminent example of one who's justified apart from works. He writes, For what shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So here he uses Abraham as an example, as the example, really, of the man who was justified by faith apart from works. And of course, Abraham predated the ceremonial law, and so we can't just be excluding works of the ceremonial law there. But he goes on also in Romans chapter 4, verses 6, six through 8, where he says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now he quotes there from Psalm 32. And, and if you read Psalm 32, you see that David is repenting and referring to his sins of adultery and murder and deceit and hypocrisy and so on, not simply ceremonial infractions. And then you can go on and just read in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, for example, where Paul says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now remember, if Paul is talking about the ceremonial law in Romans 3 and elsewhere, I'd like to ask how, in fact, faith establishes the ceremonial law. But I think kind of the, the nail in the coffin for those who want to say that Paul is only condemning ceremonial works of the law and is uh, from Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. Now clearly there, Paul is quoting one of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and not simply ceremonial infractions. You don't think that's saying you shouldn't covet your brother's circumcision? Or? <laughs> I don't know that anybody coveted that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to Scott Hahn. Sorry, I got distracted there. I, You know, I, I mean, maybe this is good, I mean, to kind of take this little dog trail off to the side, because this new perspective on Paul uh, wants to is just another theological attempt to undo the gospel. I mean, it's really quite terrible. And so it's really nice to uh, to just see it in the scriptures, how this is wrong. Uh, this this next clip from Han is is uh, just warning the listener. It has a bit of a rough quality to it. It's kind of staticky. Uh, it was when we got it, so it's uh, nothing we can do about it. But uh, even though the quality is bad, I think the content of what he says in this clip uh, is so important that we're gonna we're gonna try to work our way through it. I might have to stop stop it and start it to tell you what he's saying or uh, to make a few comments. But this is uh, Scott Hahn then uh, talking about again that justification is not a forensic act, but rather God giving us divine sonship. Here's uh, uh, here's Scott Hahn. In the Catholic tradition, flowing right from this particular passage, we see that justification is the singular privilege that God the Father grants us in Jesus the singular privilege which is divine sonship. The Holy Spirit is sent in Jesus' name by the Father to take runaways, prodigal sons and daughters, rebels without a cause, and to restore us to the family of God. And that restoration is legal, but it's also actual. In other words, God does not declare us to be just in his sight alone. God does what he declares. Uh, this is uh, an emphasis that I need to make because there are people outside of the tradition of the church who are really, I think, firmly convinced in their mind that they're representing the scriptures accurately, but I am convinced they're not. I was once in their camp, and I was once of that cause, and I would adamantly oppose Catholics 
by saying that no, when God justifies us, he only declares us to be righteous. He does not make us to be righteous. So that just to clarify what he said there, he, he used to be an anti-Catholic who would say when God justifies us, he only declares us to be righteous. He doesn't make us to be righteous. Here, Scott continues. And so I would say that justification was by faith alone. But I discovered upon a very close reading, close study of this passage here in Romans 3, that nowhere does Paul say faith alone in fact, when Martin Luther made that his battle cry, he actually had to insert the German word align, which is the word for alone, into his translation of Romans 3.28 in order to come up with that battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. And so, for me, I wanted to adhere as closely to the Word of God as possible, and I discovered that faith alone is not what justifies us, but faith is the justifying instrument. Oh boy! In the uh, let's uh, let's uh, take take this minor p- premise first. Uh, this whole Luther adding the word alone to the, his translation of Romans three twenty eight. Uh, handle that quickly because we got bigger fish to fry. I think. Okay, sure. Well, a couple of things there. Um, the Romans three twenty eight is the verse that says, uh, "For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law." And there, in fact, Luther does add in his German translation the word align, which means alone, so that it reads that we are justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. And I think Luther's um, comment in this translation on his work on translating an open letter kind of says it all. This is what he says. I knew very well that the word solum is not part in the Greek or the Latin text. Uh, The Roman Catholics or the Papists did not have to teach me that. It's a fact that these four letters, S-O-L-A, are not there, and these blockheads stare at them like cows at a new gate. At the same time, they do not see that it conveys the sense of the text. It belongs there if the translation is to be clear and vigorous. I wanted to speak German, not Latin or Greek, since it was German I had undertaken to speak in the translation. But it is the nature of our German language that in speaking of two things, one of which is affirmed and the other denied, we use the word solum, or align in German, along with the word nicht, not, or kein, no. For example, we say, the farmer brings only grain and not money. Or, no, really, I have now no money but only grain. I have only eaten and not yet drunk. Did you only write it and not read it over? There are innumerable cases of this kind in daily use, Luther says. So the explanation is basically that there are two things under consideration in Romans chapter 3. One is faith, and the other is works. Paul says that we're justified by one, faith, and not by the other, works. And so that's the same as saying, essentially, that we're justified by faith alone. But I think it's important, since Roman Catholics seem to admire so much the uh, the writings of the church fathers to point out that lots of church fathers also added the word alone to Romans 3:28. You had men like Origen, Hilary, Basil, Ambrosiaster, Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria, Bernard, Theophylact, and others uh, that have added the word alone. In fact, the most famous Roman Catholic theologian of all time, Thomas Aquinas, also adds the word alone in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. That nasty Aquinas. <laughs> this is very common, by the way. If you, if you open up your English Bible, you'll see all kinds of words as you're reading along that are italicized. And those italicized words are, are, are there in order to indicate that they have been added in order to convey the sense of the text in the English language when perhaps it wasn't quite as clear as it could have been. Jesus does the same kind of thing. For example, when he's being tempted by, the, by um, Satan in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan gives him the, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give you these if you'll bow down and worship me, Jesus responds, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and, and him only you shall serve, he says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, Jesus there is, is quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, and yet when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, you find out that the word only isn't actually there. But of course, that's what was intended, and so Jesus brings out the intent by adding the word alone, or adding the word only, and this is basically the same thing Luther does. Now, the reason why this is so important for Han to have that alone taken out of there is because he wants works to have a major role in justification, right? Well, that's that's exactly it. And uh, if you read Romans chapter 3, you you don't find any place for works whatsoever. Again, there's two things under discussion, faith and works. Paul says that faith receives salvation, works do not, and therefore Paul teaches are saved by faith alone. But what about this claim, then, that that, uh, that justification is not a declaration, is not 
a merely forensic act, but is really an act of restoration. It seems like that's the theme uh, that Han will hint, hint on more and more and more. That this is a uh, that that justification means to be restored to our uh, to some sort of state of divine sonship. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting when you listen to Han talk about uh, what he used to believe as a Protestant. You know, in that clip you just played, he says that God does not declare us to be just in his sight alone, but he does what he declares. And then he goes on to say God only declares us to be righteous in the Protestant view. The only thing that I can think of as it relates to Han is that perhaps he was an antinomian when he was a, a, a Protestant. <laughs> what do I mean by that? <laughs> Antinomians are those who, who say that we are uh, declared righteous and that's it. Uh, in other words, uh, there's no place for the law or obedience in the Christian life. When Luther writes against that uh, idea, against antinomianism, he specifically points out that when Jesus dies, he dies to merit for us, gratia et donum, in other words, grace and the gift. And what gift is he talking about there? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who's sent into our hearts so that we might cry, Abba, Father. The one who conforms us into the image of our Savior. The one who actually does make us holy. But again, all of those things are a fruit of justification. They are not the cause of justification. The thing that really puzzles me about all this, and in, in Han saying things like, in the, the, the Protestant view, God only declares us righteous, is that he apparently didn't know the Westminster Shorter Catechism very well, because in question and answer 77 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, so the, in other words, there's no, there's no complete break there, as Hahn was saying, yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. So I guess Hahn, as a Presbyterian pastor, wasn't a very good Presbyterian because he didn't really seem to believe the Westminster Shorter Catechism, at least not question 77. Now, why do, I, I'd actually like to have your opinion on that. I, I think that it's probably, they, they have the right idea, but it's uh, a bit of an incautious use of language to talk about the infusion of grace, even when we talk about sanctification, uh, just because the the place that language can be confusing. Uh, do you agree with that, or do you think it's uh, that it's good that we use that language there? No, I agree with what you said. I, I do know for a fact that the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Standards as a whole don't speak about grace or the infusing of grace in the same way that Rome does. And as a result, when you use the same language that they do, sometimes people will think that you mean the same thing. But of course, that's not the case with the with the Westminster Standards. What they're teaching essentially is is that you know you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who makes you righteous. And so when they talk about grace being infused, um, they're basically talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of His gifts, uh, those gifts which conform you into the image of Christ. So. While I think in substance we could certainly agree with what they're saying, then perhaps we might take language or take issue with the fact that they use the language that they use. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, we, it is marvelous too that, that that Paul tells us that not only do we have the gift of Christ's alien righteousness by faith, but it's it's also by faith that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, when in in Galatians three two, uh, this I only want to learn from you: Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith, how oh, marvelous! So that we, so that everything that comes to us, uh, every good thing that comes to us from God, comes is is had by us by faith. That's uh, right. Simple trust in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know the the frightening thing is this 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 sort of disparaging of legal language that you hear not only by Han but by some who actually claim to be heirs of the Reformation today. You mentioned, for example, the new perspectives on Paul and so on is a kind of a scary thing, because the word justify itself comes from the Greek word dikaiao, which means literally to declare righteous. And so it has with it this courtroom language of one who stands before the judge and, uh, and who is being acquitted of, of his charges. He's being declared righteous. I mean, these legal terms are inseparably linked with language regarding justification and salvation. You know, we have God as judge, for example, Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren. Jesus is described as our advocate. Uh, justification is pictured as an acquittal, this being declared righteous. Condemnation is described as being a conviction, you know, being declared guilty, and so on. You simply can't escape the legal language as we have it in Scripture. I mean, look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34, for example, where the Apostle Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
How shall we? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge? Notice the legal language. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, legal language. Who is he who condemns? There you have the legal language again. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Again, this idea of Jesus being our advocate. See, we're declared righteous because another, Christ, has lived perfectly in our place. We are declared righteous because another, Christ, has died and taken the punishment for our sins. We're declared righteous because another, Christ, has given us his righteousness. Oh, it's really marvelous. And this, I mean, the scriptures on this point are just really fantastic, too. I, what I think, though, Steve, here's another goofball idea of mine that you can uh, con- contradict if you like. I think that a lot of people have a kind of a sterile view of this courtroom sort of thing. So they, when we talk about justif- forensic justification, they have in their imagination like Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or something like this, and this white courtroom with this austere judge sitting up there and saying, guilty innocent guilty just this sort of thing uh and and it's uh it kind of the the image itself uh turns people off from this beautiful idea in the gospel but i like to turn then in that case to uh well really to revelation chapter 5 where you see the the throne there and and all of these people uh weeping because the 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 declaration of innocence wrapped up in the seal can't be opened but then here comes this crucified lamb into the courtroom into the throne room of god and all of the people and angels burst out singing cuz he is worthy uh, to open the seal and to declare people righteous. I mean, it's it's really a, a full and marvelous and joyful um, image that the Scriptures give us of our justification. Well, that's precisely it. I mean, when you look at the, the picture in Revelation, you don't see people reacting to it as, it as if it's simply a sterile thing. But instead, you see those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb are rejoicing forevermore in His presence because they've been declared innocent, because they have been declared righteous, because they have been declared not guilty by the Lord, because of what Christ has done for them and in their place. That's far from being a sterile thing. You know, what kind of underlies a lot of the criticisms, at least the modern-day criticisms, is really a philosophical thing. And this is the idea that if it's not internal, then it's not real. Uh. And so... You know, Roman Catholics will frequently say that the that the Lutheran doctrine of justification is what they call a legal fiction, that uh, God pretends like he doesn't see our sin, and he pretends like we are innocent, when in fact we're not. And that's simply not the case. I mean, when a judge acquits somebody, it changes their their legal status <laughs> before the law. If somebody is uh, is guilty and yet the judge pronounces him innocent, he is, in the eyes of the law, 100% innocent. There is a real change in status for that individual. And yet Roman Catholics will frequently teach that because it's not internal, it's not real. Well, we know that uh, that what God says is true. Uh, let every man, uh, let God be true and every man a liar, as Paul says. Yeah, that's, you know, this is the thing with Lutheranism, isn't it? That it's always pushing the reality, the real stuff outside of ourselves. I mean, our human nature wants to kind of, it wants to make everything internal. Um, it wants to make everything on the inside, this kind of Gnostic tendency. But here comes the, you know, here comes the scriptures and the Lutherans uh, with the scriptures saying, no, look, the the truth of of me and my salvation, the truth of God's love, it is external. It's the external word. It's the sacraments. It's here. It's here on the outside. It's something objective and real and kind of simple and humble at the same time. But it's in these things that God is really uh, really doing something, really speaking, really promising, really forgiving my sins. Absolutely. This is a, a very important point, because it's one, as we said, that's glossed over by Roman Catholics. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you look at Scripture, all of the reasons uh, for people receiving the forgiveness of sins lie outside of us. It talks about Christ being the Savior, Christ being the Redeemer, uh, and of course Christ comes outside of us to live and to die and to rise again. It attributes our salvation to his cross. It attributes our salvation to his blood, both of those things having taken place outside of us. It, re- it uh, attributes to our salvation to God's grace, to God's mercy, to God's love, all of those things, again, that are outside of us. And so our entire salvation really is outside of us. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't have an effect. You and I both know that it does have an effect and that that, in fact, is uh, internal. 
but it's not the internal change that justifies us. The internal change comes as a fruit of our justification, not as a cause of our justification. Uh, what a, with this justification business the, and the way we're talking now, would this have been familiar to the early church? I mean, these Catholic apologists will say that Luther invented this doctrine, and we had that in the last clip. Uh, you you have pointed to the church fathers, though, would speak of alone. What about forensic justification in some of the fathers? Yeah, I, you know, there's there's two places I think that are really important for us to to take a look at. You can you can examine any any of the church fathers, and you can find them saying saying things that perhaps might be compatible with the Roman Catholic view. You can find them saying things that might be compatible with the Lutheran view, and you can find them saying things that would be incompatible with both views. But I think the bottom line is they they constantly hit upon this idea that no church father taught that we're justified by faith alone. Well, if you take a look at some of the writings from Clement of Rome, and I chose him, by the way, specifically because Clement of Rome is said by the Roman Catholic Church uh, to be the fourth pope. And so you want to listen to the words of the fourth pope, according to the Roman Catholic. So this is what he says here in his epistle um, to the Corinthians. He says, all these, speaking of uh, the, the saints in the Old Testament, therefore were highly honored and made great, not for their own sake, or for their own works, or for the righteousness which they wrought, but through the operation of his will. And we too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom, or understanding, or godliness, or works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which, from the beginning of time, Almighty God has justified all men, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we see here Clement teaching exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches. There's two things in view, uh, human contribution and faith. Human contribution is completely wiped out, and so that leaves nothing but faith. And this is precisely what the Apostles uh, taught. This is precisely what uh, many of the Church Fathers taught when they were being extremely clear. You know, there's one other place that I think is really, really interesting as well when we talk about this idea of forensic justification. Some Roman Catholic apologists might say something like, well, you might be able to find the Fathers occasionally saying things that sound like the Lutheran view, like the thing I just read from uh, Clement of Rome, but you don't find them teaching forensic justification. That is, the idea that we're justified not by our own internal or intrinsic righteousness, but instead we're covered with the righteousness of Christ, and it's that uh, that actually gets us into heaven. But if you read the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus, this is from the second century. Yeah, I was just reading that this morning. What's that? Uh, you were doing your devotions from that, weren't you? <laughs> I've never heard of it. Say it again. <laughs> well, listen to this. It's, it's a wonderful statement here, the epistle of Methedes to Diognetus. But when our wickedness had reached its height, and it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us, and when the time had come when God had before appointed for manifesting his own kindness and power, how the one love of God through exceeding regard for men did not regard us with hatred, nor thrust us away, nor remember our iniquity against us, but showed great long-suffering and bore with us, he himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own Son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sin than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? O oh, sweet exchange, O oh, unsearchable operation, O oh, benefit surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Ooh. Now that is forensic justification. That's beautiful, too. Boy, uh, what's the reference on? Do you have it handy, the reference on that? Yeah, it's it's uh, the Epistle of Methedes to Diognesus 9. Oh, beautiful. Diognesus. Now, we, I've got one more Scott Hahn, and I think that's all I'm going to be able to take here. Uh, <laughs> So, you're, by the way, if you're if you're uh, listening to and you don't know what you're listening to, you are listening to Table Scraps. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I have uh, Pastor Steve Parks of University uh, Hills Lutheran Church, Denver, Colorado, on the line, and we are our discussion is Sola Fide and her cultured despisers. We've um, uh, we've been around the track a bit. I, perhaps just one more thing: in the last clip we p- played, Scott Hahn ended by talking about faith being the the instrument 
of justification or the justifying instrument. And he's going to then expound on that kind of language uh, in this clip here. Uh, it's, uh, it's about a minute long. Uh, I might stop it in the middle for, um, for some discussion. Uh, but we want to talk about what then is the role of faith in the Catholic understanding of justification and how is it different from the, from the Scriptures. So here again is Scott Hahn. It would be great news indeed if God simply declared us to be righteous in his own eyes on the basis of what Christ had done. That would be good news. But the good news, in fact, is even better than that, because God does not simply declare us to be righteous as a judge in a courtroom. God does what he declares because he's a father whose judgments are fatherly actions. And so when he declares us to be righteous, he declares us to be righteous with Christ's own righteousness And Christ is the Son of God, and so the righteousness that we receive, the standing that we have before God, the confidence that we enjoy when we we close our eyes, when we bow our heads, when we live our lives, is we are children of God. We who are creatures who don't deserve to be in God's family, we who are sinners who demerited everything that God conferred upon us in the beginning, nonetheless, God the Father has restored us to be his children and he hasn't just done it in a declarative sense. He has done it in an actual sense. There you go. He, he, so he hasn't just declared it. He's done it. Uh, it's not enough just to be declared righteous, but he has even better news, and that is that we are made righteous. Right. And again, I, I think that there's this misunderstanding of the idea that Protestants somehow teach that we are only declared righteous and that we're not made righteous or made holy. We do teach that we are made righteous, that we are transformed, that the Holy Spirit does work within our hearts and our minds to conform us into the image, not even just of holiness in general, but to the image of the one who is holy, the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, these are all things that are fruits of justification, and they're fruits of faith. They're not the cause of our justification. The cause of our justification is Christ and Him alone, His life, His death, his resurrection, because of those things, we receive freely by God's grace the forgiveness of all of our sins. Once we have received that forgiveness, however, it does affect within us an, an internal change. And in that change, we do seek to obey God. Uh, we do seek to keep his commandments. We do seek to love and to serve God and our neighbor. But again, that love and that service isn't what reconciles us to God. It isn't what gains us the forgiveness of sins. Uh, but instead, it's a result. We do it out of the gratitude for the forgiveness that we have already been given freely in Christ, not in order to gain from God something that he hasn't already given us. Now, what are the implications between those differences? I mean, to state it as clearly as possible, we teach from the Scriptures, we Lutherans, that is, teach that we are justified by God declaring us to be righteous. And then uh, that faith, which uh, which God accounts to us as righteousness, also takes hold of the Holy Spirit and, and uh, then therefore seeks after to follow God's law and to, and to do and to work and to be in our lives pleasing to him. But that is not our justification. It's not part of our being declared righteous and holy and perfect before his, before his sight. Uh, the Han, on the other hand, is, is completely interested in really nothing else but destroying that distinction and making our uh, the Holy Spirit in us and our works of obedience to be part of our justification. What's what's motivating that that uh, for him that ch- destruction of the separation between uh, being declared righteous and being made righteous? Well, you know, there may be just the ster- the uh, the idea of kind of the sterile separation. Uh, between justification and sanctification, which he apparently held to uh, when he was a Protestant, uh, you know, he makes it seems to make it pretty clear over and over again in the clips that you played that he believed that God only declared us righteous and that he doesn't actually make us righteous. Well, if that were in fact the the position of Lutheranism, I think you and I could could reject that as well. But the bottom line here is that it all comes down to a question of certainty. You know, if works are brought into the doctrine of salvation, then we're going to always have reason to doubt. We're going to ask ourselves, have, have I done enough? Am I holy enough? Am I sincere enough? Have I been sufficiently transformed internally? Have I served my neighbor enough? Do I love God enough? I mean, all of these questions are going to constantly haunt us, and they all breed doubt and uncertainty in the area of salvation. And, you know, really, it ought to uh, if it relies upon us. And Roman Catholics, in their honest moments, actually acknowledge that this is the case. For example, Roman Catholic author 
Ludwig Ott says this. He writes in his book, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. The reason for the uncertainty in relation to salvation of the state of grace lies in this, that without a special revelation, nobody can know with certainty of faith whether or not he has fulfilled all the conditions which are necessary for achieving justification. But, you know, contrary to this, Jesus affirms that our salvation is an accomplished reality. Remember what he cries out from the cross, it is finished. And because salvation is based upon his work and not our works, then we can know with certainty that we have eternal life, that we have salvation, that we have the forgiveness of sins. You know, the Apostle John says exactly this in 1 John 5. He says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. And so Luther's doctrine of salvation is important because he taught nothing other than what the Bible teaches us, that appoints us to Christ and not to us, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It points us to Christ and not to us as Savior and Redeemer. It points us to Christ and not to us as the one whose works and blood and efforts and merits have gained for us God's grace and favor. And so because his work is accomplished and finished and certain, our salvation is accomplished and finished and certain. That's the major difference. Amen. Whew! That monster of uncertainty is slain by the death of Jesus on the cross, so that when we trust his promise that our sins are forgiven, they are. God doesn't remember them. He's cast them far from himself. He does not hold us against them, so that we have, on uh, in this life and in the life to come, we have not the condemnation of our sin, but the righteousness of Christ, and so the joy of knowing that God uh, loves us, that he has us as his children, that he is not mad at us. And that comfort of the gospel uh, is what's lost when sola fide uh, is lost. But when we, ha- when we know this, that our justification, that our righteousness before God depends not on our works or deeds or the empowerment of the infused Holy Spirit, but rather on the blood of Christ shed for us, then we have this certainty and this joy and this hope. And this is exactly what Jesus wants us to have. Steve, thank you uh, so much for being a guest again on the show. We should do this uh, every week, I think. Uh, This is just fantastic. Uh, Thanks a million for being on the air. My pleasure. Thank you so much for asking, Brian. You got it. it. Thanks for listening to Table Scraps. You can can comment on this interview with Steve Parks, if you like, on our website, Table... Uh, what is that? Tabletalkradio.org. You can find it under Table Scraps and uh, leave a comment there. Uh, you can also call our phone line, which is uh, still a mystery to me. Uh, really like the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification. Uh, or send us an email at questions at tabletalkradio.org. Again, thanks for listening. If you made it to the end, 1,000 points to you. Uh, the Lord's blessings.